Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We sing of the power of the voice of the Lord that strikes awe into our hearts and we are compelled to confess our sins. Psalm 106, again, I'm sticking with that psalm throughout our liturgy this morning, uh, will uh, call us to confession, verses 6 and 7. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. When you, re- when you remember something by yourself, it's just an internal mental thing that your brain does. But when this verse says, Israel did not consider God's works, they did not remember, or when Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of Him, that's different. That's God's people remembering together. And that takes words, and it takes coordinated actions. So when you read the Bible or pray as a family, when you come to church and hear a sermon and we pass the bread and wine, we are remembering the abundance of God's steadfast love together. And that's a good thing. We'll look at the Heidelberg Catechism once again. We're going through the Ten Commandments. We're up to the Third Commandment, which is all about words, how we use God's name mainly. People misuse words all the time to grab attention, to assert themselves, and that often involves swearing or profaning the name of God and of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says that God will judge every idle word, that to make the name of God some filler word for your frustration certainly qualifies as an idle word. Instead, let us reverence God's holy majesty. pray once again before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would be our rule, that your spirit would be our teacher, and that the glory of your son Jesus would be our single concern this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Hear God's infallible word. I'll start at verse 25 of Acts 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. 
He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to excuse me, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold... After me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if it one tells it to you. Now as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. A long chapter there, but a good sampling of Paul's apostolic preaching. As usual, what we'll do is walk through the text, not quite verse by verse, there's too many verses today, but we'll uh, take some samples and look at this as we apply on the way. Start with the first uh, three verses. We have Saul and Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas and Saul, actually, I should say, sent out. Notice there are other teachers in Antioch. Remember, this is the Antioch where they were first called Christians. And notice that list in verse 1. You have Barnabas mentioned first, and then three other people we know nothing about, (laughs) and then Saul mentioned last. Uh, Those three in the middle are interesting. The one called Niger. Niger is Greek and Latin for black. And uh, Cyrene is in Africa. So most scholars assume that these two guys are African Christians of some uh, ethnicity. So that's uh, intriguing. The other one grew up with Herod in his court. So you have quite a diversity of prophets and teachers and church uh, believers in Antioch. Uh, The Bible assumes, notice, at verse 2, they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Bible assumes God's people fast. Uh, That's part of our spiritual warfare against the world, part of our discerning God's direction in our lives, perhaps. They they seem to be in that kind of situation, verse 2. They're seeking the will of God, and God answers. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So uh, there's a certain awareness here of God's plan to go further. Uh, How? Not quite sure. 
Uh, that may have been an outward sense. Maybe a prophet spoke by the Spirit, or maybe it was an inward sense. The people in the church just had this growing sense inside that, that, that we, we need to send people out from here. And that's always been a, 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 tr- a hallmark of the church of Christ, is we want to send people out with, with this good news. So Saul and Barnabas go. Notice how vague it is, by the way, verses 2 and 3. The, the Spirit just says, set them apart for the work. Say, like, okay, what's the work? Where are we going? What are we? <laughs> that's not stipulated. Uh, and that's, that's fine. It reminds me of Abraham's call to go, right? In, in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. Get up from here, leave your land, go to the land I'll show you. That's pretty, that's pretty vague. And it takes a lot of trust to, in God to say, okay, I'm going to start leaving. You're going to show me where I'm supposed to go. That's what God does. The church sends them, lays hands on them, notice. That's why I read from 1 Timothy 4 today. The same thing happened with Timothy. The council of elders laid hands on him. We'll do that in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, laying hands on a new deacon. Ordaining men to office is something the church has always done. Moses laid hands on Joshua. It's the ordination of a person to an office of authority. So that's part of what they're doing here. Uh, now, notice here that the church and the Spirit both send them. Just to pause to apply a minute. Uh, the church and the Spirit both send Barnabas and Paul. Uh, there's a few things to glean from that. I'll just mention, uh, uh, just tick off quickly here. One, individuals generally should not go off on their own without oversight claiming the Spirit's leading. Also, the church should not assume that whatever it is doing is right just because it's the church, right? Just because it's the church doesn't mean it's doing the right thing. The church needs to be following the Spirit. That's important, right? so, so believers need to be accountable to each other. That's, what, that's part of what needs to happen. Uh, another way to apply this is to say this, and Barnabas and Saul, of course, were unique. They were special. But each of us, in a sense, is sent. And that's something to consider uh, for a minute. Uh, we are sent by Jesus from among our brothers, from among the church, uh, and, and consider worship in this way. Worship is an example for daily living. At the end of most Christian worship services, you have some kind of sending, and we do that as well, right? Every day in our lives, we should respond to God's presence in adoration, that's our call to confession, to call to worship, our opening hymn. Every day, we should confess our sins to God and to each other. Every day, we should read His Word and ponder its application in our lives. That's the third C in our, in our step, Right? Every day we should sit down to eat with our family and give thanks to God. That's, that's how this service goes. And especially at the end, we realize we are sent with the commission. Right? That's what happens to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He sees the glory of God. He confesses his sin. He hears God's word. He's purified. And then God asks, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I send me. 
So when we do that at the end of the service, I don't know about you, but just, just to talk turkey here a minute, when we stand for the commission at the end, right after we take the cup, right, and then we stand for the commission from God's word, my main thought, my main feeling tends to be, okay, the service is ending, <laughs> right? You have this sense of, all right, we're getting up to go. That, that tends to be the, the sense of things. If that's you, and it's me sometimes, I'd urge you to fight that and replace those thoughts and think instead, Jesus has just fed me, and now he wants me to get up and go, and he's sending me to serve him. That, that's the main gist there of that commission. Uh, when we lived in Virginia for 12 years or so, we were in a suburb, and there was a big Baptist church on the corner of the main road. We drove past it every time to go anywhere. And in the parking lot, sometimes we'd be in the parking lot doing things like driver's training or something, you'd leave the Baptist church parking lot and there was a sign, and many Baptist churches have these kinds of signs. The sign says something like, you are now entering the mission field, right? That's true. And that's something to keep in mind. We are sent. We're sent to work. Children, you're sent to your schoolwork or to your chores. Parents, you are sent to household management, to discipling your children. Men, you are, you are sent to a vocation outside the home. When you go to your work tomorrow morning, you are sent there by God, just as Barnabas and Saul are sent. So remember that God is, is sending you to your labor, however mundane it feels. Uh, sometimes that can help when you remember, this isn't just me trying to survive. This is, this is God doing this. When you're when you're caring for crying infants, as we're doing this morning, God is sending you to that. That's, that's a holy calling. It's a good thing. So uh, let, let's move on from verse 3 to verse 4. Uh, Barnabas and Saul are sent. They're going to sail to Cyprus, which is interesting. Remember, that's where Barnabas is from. So maybe Barnabas felt led by the Spirit to evangelize his own people. That's a, a strong possibility. And they go to Cyprus. They preach in the synagogue in, in Salamis, and then they go to the governor in Paphos. And this is an interesting parallel with Peter a couple of chapters back in chapter 8. Peter met Simon Magus, right? And now Paul meets Elemus, the magician. And there's this uh, power encounter here again that God enables Paul uh, to win. Uh, you have a name change here as he uh, converts the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, so this guy's name is Paul. That, that's something we often uh, don't remember. We don't know. It, it was Paul Saul of Tarsus's Roman name all along? Or does he take the name newly now? We're not really sure. It's not really all that important to know for sure. The point is he starts using this Roman name now that he's dealing with Romans. And that's, it's right, it's right here in the text. I think it's fairly obvious, but I don't, I don't want to make too much of it. But this is the first time that Saul is called Paul when he converts the proconsul Paul. And, and we'll talk more about this. Paul also is named before Barnabas now for the first time. It's always been Saul and Barnabas, excuse me, it's always been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas first. Now for the first time, where is it? Verse 9. Now I lost the verse. 13, verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail. So when they leave Cyprus, it's no longer Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and his party. 
And that, there's a significant uh, directional change that has taken place. Uh, and we'll look at that uh, a bit more. Um, one way to apply this is, is, is this. Uh, why does Paul call himself Paul now? He's been Saul of Tarsus ever since he's been uh, in his mother's womb. Why change your name to Paul? Uh, I think it has to do with the fact that he wants to reach Romans. And Romans don't call themselves Saul, they call themselves Paul. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things that cultures do. So something to glean here is that we should not put unnecessary obstacles in the way of people coming to Christ. Romans uh, did not have to become Jewish in culture or outlook uh, to become a Christian. So if calling yourself Paul instead of Saul is going to win you a better hearing, then do it. Don't let your Jewish pride get in the way of the gospel. And Paul doesn't. Now for us it isn't Jewish pride, but there is a similar dynamic. There's an insider church or insider Christian dynamic that we can often have. Uh, we like to be cultural contrarians, and that's good. That's important to do many times. For instance, we celebrate uh, children as a blessing instead of minimizing or sending them off for others to care for during church, right? Uh, we're, we're fine with a little bit of the crying because we want our children with us in the worship service. That's good. These are important countercultural behaviors. But for Jews, names like Saul and practices like circumcision had become a barrier, keeping Gentiles from coming to God. And the Jews were fine with that. They're like, yeah, keep those Gentiles away. It's unclean people. They're not, they don't know, we don't know how to live before God. Keep them away. That's not how we're supposed to be living and thinking. What walls do we have up that keep us from interacting with people about Jesus? Are we more excited to talk about homeschooling or politics than about Jesus? Sometimes that happens. Can we ignore for the minute the fact that your coworker in the next cubicle is going to vote for Biden again and thinks their public school is great if they at least seem to open to hearing about Jesus? Will we talk to them then? That's important. So, Sergius Paulus, a Roman proconsul, a governor kind of like Pilate, I don't know if he was on exactly the same level, but something like that. Paulus believes. And two reasons are given, again, the miracle and the teaching, right? You have, you have the, the preaching that Barnabas and Saul are doing, and then you have this miracle of making Elymas blind. And he's amazed. So, again, some application. If we're going to have success in evangelism, we have to prosper in word and in deed. Tell the gospel news with clarity Live it out in love and service to others. Uh, here again, with Paul, the, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, we see a Gentile with no background in the Old Testament converting to Christ. We saw that in Cornelius a few chapters back. Then in Antioch, a lot of Gentiles come to the Lord. And now here again, a Roman governor, uh, some, some level of power with Pilate, coming to Christ. So, stand with Jesus. That's what Saul and Barnabas are doing. Uh, Sergius Paulus is seeking the truth. He is intelligent, it says, but he's got a quack joker as a courtier. And, and he's thinking there's got to be something better than this. And I, 
honestly, to tell you the, the cultural winds that are going right now, that's what I think a lot of people are thinking right now. When you think about the presidential election coming up, everything I hear in the news is, there's got to be something better than Biden or Trump. And the corporate news that I hear is all about a, a rush to get rid of the ESG, DEI stuff. Get rid of it. Seriously. It's like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. Everybody's realizing what a scam and a fad it was. Anti-racism and all that. It's pretty much over. And I think the mainstream person, I'm not talking about the left-wing advocate, I know they're still pushing for it hard, but the main person out there on the street, they're just, they're thinking, isn't there anything more? Where's the truth in all this? And there are plenty of deceivers preying upon seekers like that. Elemis with Paulus. We need to stand apart from those quacks, those sorcerers, those deceivers, and speak the truth of the living God. That's what Jesus did, standing before Pilate. And Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Probably with some kind of mixture of sarcasm and sincere seeking, I think. Isn't there anything better than this? Anyway, he's found something better. He's a convert to the Christian faith. And verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from there. John leaves them. We'll come back to that. Verse 14, they go on to Antioch in Pisidia. This is where it gets confusing. There's two Antiochs, <laughs> right? There's an Antioch on the far eastern tip of modern-day Turkey, and then there's an Antioch, kind of a central western Turkey. So there's two of them. So this is the second one that they're going to. So they go from Antioch, they wind up in another Antioch, ironically enough. Uh, so... Mark leaves, and, and why is that? This comes up later in the New Testament. Uh, Paul is really upset at this. Paul will not take Mark later on when they go on another missionary journey because he left them. So Paul saw this as a moral failure of Mark, which is fascinating. Uh, there's at least four possible reasons. I'll go through them fast here. One is the, maybe it was the opposition that shook him up. Maybe the encounter with Elemis was like, whoa. I don't know what I'm getting into. I don't like this. I just, I just wanted a nice, peaceful missionary journey. Just give me a nice short-term mission trip, and I'll go back home, and that'll be fine. Uh, maybe that's it. Uh, another possible reason is that the physicalness of the, the journey was too much. They've traveled over sea to Cyprus. Now, it, to get to an, this second Antioch, there are mountains to climb. Uh, treacherous, the treacherous Taurus Mountains. Uh, maybe, again, he just expected a short-term mission trip and go home. But now Paul's taking him further west and north. And he's like, I just want to go home. Uh, third, uh, Barnabas seems to no longer be the leader. And, and remember that Barnabas and Mark are cousins. So here, again, there may be some insider d difficulties um, where... It, 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 it doesn't seem likely for the second gospel writer, that's who this Mark is, but we do see uh, ugly sin in many heroes of the faith. This, is, this would just be petty envy. It's like, my cousin's not in charge anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with this. This, this latecomer Paul, I don't, I don't know much about him. I want my guy to be in charge, and if he's not, I'm out of here. 
That's a possibility. That happens in the church all the time. Fourth, and most likely, is the new direction that we have. Uh, Having converted Sergius Paulus, a Roman governor, Paul, I think, has caught a vision for Roman rulers to believe and to infuse the whole Roman Empire with Christianity. I think that's what's going on. There's some evidence in history that Sergius Paulus had family in Pisidian Antioch. You know, the question comes up, why would Paul go to, it seems like a weird place to go. It's 100 miles off the coast, inland, over a whole bunch of mountains. Why go there? I think that's why. Paul has a, a mission to reach more Romans. Why else would he, Paul, do this? Uh, later, also, Paul makes sure to go to as many Roman colonies as he can. Lystra, Philippi, Corinth, all Roman colonies. Paul makes sure to stop there. So that's probably why, but there's, there's several ways to consider that and, and glean spiritual insight from that. Notice a bit of application here. I think this is something of a setback for the team. Right? The team is Barnabas, Saul of Tarsus, John Mark, and there's probably a few more in the entourage. This is a setback. Mark leaves the team. And we're going to face setbacks like that. We have this happen in, in the church all the time. People stop coming. People leave. This happens. It's very realistic the way this goes. It should not daunt us, but determine us to forge ahead in the cause of Christ. And again, uh, just going to pound away at the insider thing a little bit. Mark may have left because Barnabas is his cousin, and he's the Jerusalem insider getting eclipsed by the latecomer Paul. And this is part of why I read from the the parable of the vineyard today. Uh, Our tendency is for all the vineyard workers who've been working all day to stick together and let those one-hour workers know their inferior status. (laughs) That's our tendency, right? We live close to Detroit, where the union mentality is quite strong, right? Maybe, Maybe you talk and deal with at work seniority. That's a big deal in some workplaces. That's something to fight against in the church. Uh, watch out to include newcomers in what's going on rather than delight in knowing how th- things were around here long before they, they got here. Or newcomers can take offense too when veterans don't reach out to them more. And it's the same in the family. Think of, of families as well. Older siblings, instead of helping younger ones to learn the ropes, they can kind of hold it over them to feel superior and keep them under. That's a sin, and that causes much resentment if it's not dealt with. So, uh, Mark leaves, but they have success in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, And here we have a long section, verses 13 to 52, uh, where Paul is uh, preaching here in the synagogue. He recounts Israel's history quite quickly. Uh, Notice he addresses God-fearing Gentiles right away, along with the Jews, uh, from the start, every time. Men of Israel, this is middle of verse 16, Men of Israel and you who fear God. And he says it again later. I can't quite find. uh, Verse 26. Brothers. And he's in a synagogue. He's talking to Jews. Brothers. Sons of the family of Abraham. (laughs) He's bearing in on the Jews. But then he says, And those among you who fear God. He's, He's making a point to address the Gentiles who are in the crowd. This would be like 
You know how in a presidential address, the president says, my fellow Americans, right? And that's usually all he says. It would be kind of like the president coming out with a statement, let's say, about Ukraine and saying, my fellow Americans and you Ukrainians. It's like, that's not something the president says. You don't don't single out somebody else like that. Paul is singling out the Gentiles in the crowd. Again, I think it's because he's gotten this change of direction and vision in his mind. Well, anyway, what he does is he recounts Israel's history, starting in verse 17. The Exodus gets one verse. (laughs) The wilderness wandering, one verse. Uh, The conquest of the land, Joshua, the whole book of Joshua is all in verse 19. Uh, The Judges is verse 20. And then he comes to, interesting, verse 21, he mentions uh, King Saul, who's of the tribe of Benjamin. Who's talking? The guy whose name is Saul, who's from the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> he's, he's laying out his Jewish credentials, in a way. But David gets the favor, and he goes on and on. And this whole history, it's all with God as the subject of the verbs. Notice how he does that. It's critical. We're, we're big around here on Reformed theology, on on uh, biblical theology, on redemptive history. It's very important. And here Paul gives us a great summary of it. And one aspect of that is that God is always the actor. He's the one who's dealing with his people, who's initiating. Everything that Paul says, God chose Israel. God put up with Israel. God conquered the Canaanites. God did this. God did that. It's the divine initiative of grace. It's a hallmark of Paul right from the start. It's, if, if you want a good book to read, it's, um, it's by Voss, V-O-S, called Biblical Theology. That's a good challenging read for some of you high schoolers, maybe. So Paul recounts the whole history. And then verse 23, he, he comes uh, to Jesus, uh, David's son, a savior, Jesus, as he promised So God promised to give an eternal king from David's descendants, announced by John, condemned by the Jews, raised by God, verse 33. Raising Jesus means resurrecting him and bringing him to the throne. Fulfilling scripture, verse 33, to us, that he has fulfilled to us their children. I found that phrase striking. To us, their children. God gave these promises and did these things with Jesus to our fathers. We are their children, right? Usually when we think about uh, covenant and salvation, we're thinking about our children, the promises to us and to our children. That's good, that's important. But it means first, to us as children, (laughs) right? The promise was given to our fathers and came to us. There's a lot to, we, we prayed this morning about Christian mentors. We, that's why we do that. Because we need to remember those who have brought us into the faith. As Paul tells Timothy, remember your mother and your grandmother. Remember those who have gone before. Uh, learn from them. Well, uh, forgiveness is offered. Verse 38. Here you see uh, Paul's uh, uh, distinctive theology coming out. Uh, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Uh, verse 30, yeah, 
38, at the end of 38, this is key. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I'm using the ESV today. The, that word freed, in the Greek, it's justified. Justified. What justifies you? And Paul says, it's not the law of Moses. It's Jesus. This is critical. And here is the point of contention. This is where he changes. Verse 40, the very next verse, he says, beware. I think Paul sensed that there was some disagreement in the room right at that point. Because you don't tell a synagogue of Jews you can't be justified by the law of Moses. That's what Paul just did. There's the point of contention. The Jew would have argued here that the Old Testament is sufficient. It's all we need. And the church, through Paul, is saying, no, you need Jesus. You search the scriptures and you think you have life in them, but they point to me, Jesus said. All scripture points to him. The Old Testament can't justify you from your sins. It points to a savior beyond those scriptures. Sacrifices were given as a symbolic and a temporary atonement. But God would send a prophet like Moses for us to hear. A suffering servant who would bear away our iniquities, as Isaiah promised. David's servant, excuse me, descendant, who would not see corruption. The Old Testament speaks of him, but his righteousness is apart from the law and the prophets, as Romans 3 says. You need to look beyond Torah to the Savior that it sought. And he has come. And there are witnesses to his resurrection in Jerusalem. If you haven't noticed, I'm, I'm trying to summarize the core gospel right there, just as Paul did. We have got to ground ourselves in that gospel. That is the good news, what I just summarized in the last 60 seconds. It's part of the main reason why I'm taking us through the book of Acts. Because we've got to ground ourselves in this as we seek to live in the world today. Well, the warning again, verse 40. Beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Then he quotes Habakkuk 1. Again, he can sense the disbelief, I think. But what does Habakkuk say? This is where the idea of justification by faith is found. (laughs) Famous verse that Paul quotes in Romans as well, that Luther uh, discovers. The just are saved by faith. We will live by his faith. Habakkuk warns Israel about the coming Assyrian invasion. Paul uses it to warn of God's coming judgment. And, he, and both are calling God's people to live by faith, not by the law of Moses. So this is Paul's debut sermon here. Uh, in Acts. Much like Acts 2 is Peter's debut sermon. It's apostolic. It's Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, what happened to him, a call to repent. And again, uh, the response is a divided crowd, some rejecting, some, uh, some coming to believe. The Jews envy this. Uh, verse uh, 40, let's see, verse, sorry, 47. Uh, Paul says, as they re- reject, Uh, Paul says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles then. I'm not going to stay here in the synagogue. I'm going to spread out to the whole city. Whoever, I'm going to preach to whoever. This message is not just for Jews. 
And he quotes from Isaiah 49, I've made you a light to the Gentiles. That was speaking of Jesus first, but it's, here's a good example where we have scriptural warrant to say that there are many verses that speak of Jesus first, primarily, but then that also apply to us. Jesus is, of course, the light of the world, capital L, but he says we are to be the light of the world too. And same goes for this verse, I've made you a light for the Gentiles. That applies to Paul and Barnabas. It applies to you and me, even though Jesus, of course, is the ultimate light uh, for all men. So uh, he turns to encourage the Gentiles, and many believe, uh, verse 48, those appointed to eternal life believe, uh, as in those enroll in the book of life, right? They've been living all their lives apart from God, but their names were written in God's book of life. His decree from eternity was to save them. And so they come to faith. It's a wonderful way that Scripture uh, merges the idea of election and predestination, uh, that doctrine, with the idea that, that we need to believe, right? There's also, we're called to believe. Well, that, that's how Scripture puts it then. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice here that, there, that many, many come. Almost the whole city, it says, right? Something to consider there, just a um, counterintuitive thought to throw at you today. The whole world is not against Jesus. Almost the whole city comes and many, many people believe, right? Jesus came to save the world, and that means many people in it. So be not discouraged, Sometimes we take a perverse delight in being the only true believers. And I would urge us against that a little bit this morning. Uh, sure, there are different people that, um, different Christians that go to church, they sing songs at church that we find silly maybe, or they don't know their theology like we do, whatever it is. But, but that cuts us off from many believers around us. They, they love and trust Jesus like we do. So let's not despise other members of the body of Christ. That's what the Jews did here. They end up rejecting the gospel because all these people come. And they're like, who are these people? That's the posture. I'm urging us against that. But think about those Jews sitting there in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch and what happens that next Sabbath. Are we ready for revival? What if a hundred new people come to church next Sunday? What if it's 2,000? We want that, don't we? (laughs) But when it actually happens to God's people, sometimes they don't want it. Out of envy, out of wanting to be in control of whatever, whatever it is. So that response is important for us to to remember. So these people, verse 50, they get the the rulers against them, uh, the devout women of high standing, the Jews, the leading men of the city. They stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They They shake the dust off their feet, which Jesus told them to do. And again, this highlights the break between Jew and Gentile, uh, Jew and Christian. Paul and Barnabas are willing to separate from the Jews over Christ. 
And that doesn't seem like a big deal to us. That's just the course of how the Bible goes. But that would be like us renouncing our American citizenship and going to live in another country. Barnabas and Saul are Jews from birth. Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin. He loves his heritage, as he should. These are their people. Are we willing to say no to America where she rejects Christ? Well, if that's what it means to be an American, I'm not an American. Some of you, or or think of it this way, some of you have extended family members who are hostile to your faith, to our Jesus. They're going to cause tension and trouble. You don't have to renounce them first and swear them off and never talk to them. We should be inviting and welcoming to Jesus of anyone. But they may well renounce you. And if they do, we need to be okay with living apart from them. If you're not going to talk to me because I love Jesus, I still love Jesus. So these disciples, the last verse of our text, verse 52, they have joy in the Spirit. And this isn't talking about Saul and Barnabas as they go to the next place. This is talking about the Pisidian Antioch believers. As they are persecuted, they are filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Troubles do not remove the joy of true believers. Of course, we'll be less happy in troubles, usually. But when we remember that not a hair of our head falls to the ground without the will of our Father in heaven, then we can be patient when things go against us, as the Catechism says. Even joyful in our spiritual blessings in Christ. Uh, Two quick points of application, and then I'm done. One, the unique point of Paul's message is that God justifies us by Christ. Uh, I talk about the gospel a lot, and if you wonder what I mean exactly, this is it. God justifies us in Jesus. We need to be justified, and only God can make that happen for us, and he did it in Jesus. Do we place our trust only in Christ as God's appointed Savior? Do we believe God will forgive our sins because of the death and resurrection of Jesus? That's the basic gospel. We don't live holy lives motivated by guilt or by law or by duty, but by knowing that we are adopted and loved children of God. The gospel, this gospel is the gas and the engine that propels any of our obedience down the road. So, last, as we pursue the Great Commission, spreading gospel life into the corners of our lives, into the far corners of the world, we're going to face opposition, but we'll also have success. So let's look to Jesus, God's appointed and risen Messiah, given to us to remove our sins from God's sight. Let's live and speak the good news of Jesus like Paul does to any who will listen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing us with your word. Thank you for your goodness uh, to your people, uh, for growing and multiplying your church as you did in the days of the Acts of the Apostles. 
Lord, you are continuing that work today, growing and multiplying your people. Uh, Lord, we, uh, in our context, sometimes seem to see more of a decline of the church. In other nations, the church, your church is growing. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would simply trust you for the result and that we would look in faith to your son Jesus, that we would take the message of him uh, to our uh, family members, to our neighbors, to our workers, co-workers. Lord, let us be a light to the Gentiles. Uh, we pray, Lord, where we have uh, less gifting to verbally speak the gospel, that you would show us how we can act it out in our lives. Uh, thank you that we have that option as well. We pray, Lord, that you would make us uh, salt and light uh, to uh, the people of this earth, uh, that they would know, uh, that, that all the ends of the earth would know that your name has been magnified in the work of Jesus. We pray in his name. He is uh, the living word of God, and we sing. from Matthew chapter 8 when the centurion asks Jesus to heal his daughter. Matthew 8 verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus spoke there of the table of Abraham. We need to remember that this table before us is expandable. It grows larger over time to fit all of Christ's body. The Roman centurion had faith not seen by Jesus in Israel. He didn't expect a place at the Lord's table, but God gave it to him. Tables fit a certain number of people around them. But this table fits all who put their trust in the Lord, along with their children. Many feel like outsiders. Perhaps you don't feel worthy to be at the Lord's table. And that's part of the point. You aren't worthy. We should feel humbled enough to be convicted. And we should also feel the assurance of our forgiveness here. The cup of shame that we deserved is taken away. You don't have to drink it. Jesus drank it for you. You have a cup of joy instead. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. 
That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings. Blessings.